Is your team stuck between burnout and flourishing? There's a name for that. Plus, my guest today knows the magic formula for making your ideas irresistible. It's ahead now on Boss Better Now. You're listening to Boss Better Now. Please welcome speaker, author, and coleslaw snob, Joe Mall. <laughs> Hello again, boss heroes. Welcome to the show that aspires to be food for the boss's soul. Every week we bring advice, humor, and encouragement to leaders who care about being a great boss, but don't always know how. Please welcome my co-host, professional coach, Alyssa Mullet. Hey, uh, now if you tell me you are anything other than a vinegar-based coleslaw snob, I will consider you not an actual snob of the coleslaw. Well, that's pretty darn perfect, because as we have figured out along the way here on our show, you're the yin to my yang. I'm the vice to your versa. Um, my snobbishness <laughs> around coleslaw first begins with the base, and I do not prefer a vinegar-based coleslaw. I'm sorry. Oh, it's just... Um, ugh. I don't like the smell of vinegar. I don't like the taste of vinegar. I don't even like the word vinegar. There's something about it I find troubling. So as far as coleslaw goes, I, I am a bit of a snob. I I there are two things that have got to be going on with the coleslaw to make it work for me. I see your incredulity. Did I say that right? Your I don't incredulousness know, I, on your face. Yes. Uh, uh, okay. Do tell about these two absurd factors that you believe are important to coleslaw. I see that you are already naming them as absurd, despite the fact that you haven't heard them in their entirety yet. Okay. I, I will yes. sit here and be judged. That's fine. Um, the first is that I like a cream-based coleslaw. Um, I don't even, I don't know that it's cream-based as in like the ingredient is cream. I, I just mean that it's not vinegar-based. Uh, the second mm -hmm. factor is I don't like it finely diced to the point where it's like mush. I like a, a um, like shredded coleslaw. So sadly, okay. there have been many times when I've been in a restaurant, not lately, uh, where, you know, you get a side of coleslaw. And as soon as I see it, I'm like, no, that's not my coleslaw. Or I'll see it and be like, oh, this has potential. And then I'll take a bite and I'll be like, nope, there's a lot of vinegar in there. And so I will admit with enthusiasm, with gusto that, yes, I'm a coleslaw snob. Okay, so for our listeners who are listening to us rather than watching us on YouTube, first you should understand that Joe has a pirate sh shirt on, okay? And so we're both in the Pittsburgh vicinity, all right? Yes, so it's not a shirt with a picture of like the stereotypical cartoon pirate. That's not what she means. Oh, it's right, a no, Pittsburgh Pirates baseball. polo yes, yes, shirt. Sorry. Yes, that's okay. <laughs> but... Now the question becomes, as a Pittsburgher would have to ask, oh, goodness. how do you go in and eat a permane sandwich if you do not like vinegar-based coleslaw? Because they're not going to give it, give you a sandwich with anything else other than that coleslaw on it. Well, there's two ways to go about it. The first is you can order it with a slaw on the side. And I know that is... Um, um, it's, it makes me a heretic here in, in Western Pennsylvania, and I get that, and I will own that. Uh, the other part of it is there are some things that I can tolerate when they are mixed in with other things. So I would be lying if I said that I had never had a good Primani sandwich with the, the vinegar-based slaw, because with the right other components, uh, it, it, it's 
It's been palatable. It's it's those French fries on top of <laughs> the meat, the cheese, and the bread. Which That's is right. Real, yeah, like you slap some and bacon and fries and meat and cheese and two big slices of bread, um, and you tuck a little bit of coleslaw in there. I can handle that. All right. Well. <laughs> I won't completely disown you again. We're, we're racking up the the points of incompatibility here, but thank God that podcasting doesn't require simpaticoness with regards <laughs> to likes and uh, that's just why it general works. rightness in the world. <laughs> well, and I also feel like we may have just broken a world record for the longest conversation about coleslaw on a podcast. So I might I might throw that out there. And everybody listening to this right now is like, oh, for the love of God, move on. <laughs> yes, okay. Shall we then? <laughs> well, I want to talk today. We were languishing there in our conversation about coleslaw. Ooh. Pro segue. And I want to talk about languishing. Um, on April 19th, the organizational psychologist Adam Grant, who is also a great speaker, he's an author, uh, he is the host of a terrific podcast called The Work-Life Podcast, which you should definitely check out. You're just listeners. You're not allowed to like it more than our show. And he, he wrote an article in The New York Times uh, on something called languishing. And it was really interesting. As soon as this came out, it zoomed around the internet. I saw this article shared more than any other in a long time. And languishing is the term that he decided to spotlight as the, the state of being that exists between depression and flourishing. And he talked about how is this the state of mind that so many folks spent a great deal of 2020 in and the, really the first part of 2021. And, and here's what he said about languishing. He said, languishing is having trouble concentrating and feeling aimless. You, you still have energy, but there's also a feeling of stagnation or emptiness. Uh, you're sort of just muddling through your days in a way. Uh, he says you're not mentally ill, but you're not the picture of mental health either. And the result is that you're not functioning at full capacity. And so, Alyssa, have you experienced languishing? In recent months? Absolutely. You yeah. know, you were the third person that sent me that article, right? Okay, okay. so it is definitely getting its rounds out there. Yeah. And as soon as I received it, I saw it first from uh, a therapist friend of mine who's forwarded it on. I was like, this, exactly this. Mm -hmm. This word describes and encapsulates what I have definitively felt. Um, I'm not sure all of 2020, but absolutely in the first part of 2021, I yeah. have just felt like I should have, right, more energy, more capability, more capacity around certain things, projects, or, you know, even, you know, remote school, we're in the last nine weeks, you know, trucking along. And I feel like that should has kind of been a weight on me of like, this is what I should be feeling, right? But I don't feel that. But yet I'm not like depressed in the sense that I can't get out of bed. I still, I right. still do have energy and capacity around, you know, doing my routines and, you know, serving the habits that serve me and all of those things. But there is a definitive drop 
in what I think I have the capacity to put forth into the world. Right. When I read the article, it, it gave a vocabulary for me to what I think might be the biggest leadership challenge for 2022. Uh, I think this has the potential to be the thing that we have to work on. I think that the biggest leadership challenge for the rest of this year and into next year, because the COVID recovery is barely started and it's going to take some time. um, I think there's a kind of workplace PTSD that we all have to learn to figure out and that leaders are going to really struggle to navigate a little bit. Um, the, The word in the article and, and this idea really for me was able to capture the kind of sliding back that everyone did once we got through that initial first part of the pandemic, right? You talked about the homeschooling, you talked about the work changes. In those first few weeks, everybody turns all of their senses and attention and energy and fear and and everything up to 11. And we operated that way for a while, right? And, and I think there was a time when we all expected yeah. that this would be kind of a short-term inconvenience. But when that proved not to be the case, operating with all of our senses turned up to 11 is not sustainable. Eventually, yeah. there are parts of you that start to shut down. And so there's a kind of sliding back of our energy, of our positive, healthy self-talk um, for, for leaders in the workplace, of the kind of rallying to come together and get through it that you see on teams sometimes, that stuff just starts to fade away. And I think what we have slid into is languishing. And, yeah. you know, I, I think it's important to to note from the article the, that Adam Grant does note that this was a term originally coined by a sociologist named Corey Keyes. So, you know, giving credit where credit is due for the idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, I think it's important to talk about why it's so harmful, right? Because obviously if we're languishing, you know, you you at one level you don't catch yourself if your senses are dulled, but if you are slipping into a deeper mental health crisis, uh, when yeah. you're languishing, you're undoubtedly going to experience friction. Maybe it's at home or maybe it's at work or maybe it's just in between our own ears. And if nothing else, languishing you know, if if it results in you just kind of doing the minimum and trying to get through the day, well, then we're sort of getting caught into a vicious cycle of languishing, aren't we? Because if I'm just doing the minimum and then, you know, I, I'm not always staying on top of the laundry or the dishes or the, the work or I'm not or the exercise and taking care of myself. And now all of a sudden I have guilt about that and worry about that. And now I've got more languishing. And so there's this kind of vicious cycle. So yeah. how else is it harmful? How else have you seen it take a toll? Well, I feel like what you just touched on that last bit of it, where is that, you know, the guilt, you know, that that's kind of that's a more exacting term than that should umbrella yeah. that weight that I mentioned. Right. So that's exactly what it is, that guilt, that shame that you're not doing all that you're capable of. Right. And so when you show up with that, with that shame and guilt in the workplace, mm-hmm. Think about what that's going to do to your ability to lead, number one, and your ability to recognize it and help others help your team through it. So I think that the the first um, things that we're identifying here 
um, from the article that are really super important. Um, and there's a large body of work around this on its own is naming the emotion, mm -hmm. naming that has real power because when we can say, I am languishing, mm -hmm. that means something that identifies how we are operating uh, within the world. Um, and thereby gives us the opportunity to shed some of that shame, some of the guilt um, that we might be feeling. And the other really imperative part of this, um, and in speaking with, you know, friends and colleagues who are in the therapy field, um, is that this represents what, you know, you mentioned this whole post-traumatic syndrome, right? That is the next pandemic, mm -hmm. a mental health pandemic. That is what all of my counseling and therapist friends and colleagues are saying is that that is really what we're going to be dealing with for the foreseeable future is the fallout from how we had to be what we had to do in order to condition ourselves to survive mentally and emotionally for the past year, year and a half. And so um, being able as a leader to recognize that this isn't an end time stamp, right? right. Um, and understanding that this is a long-term process and how you, number one, have to help yourself, right? Um, and number two, be prepared to help others through that process as well. What resources can you ready? What types of services? How can you work to destigmatize de mental health, mental care, um, so that we can... Um, not only get ourselves out of true mental crisis, um, out of languishing, but get ourselves to the point of mental health as the standard of care that we give first and foremost to ourselves and then offer to those whom we lead. Right. And I'm so glad you brought that up as, you know, this is this is not a, a short chat where you're going to fix it by just encouraging someone to buck up, right? And on the other right. side of that, though, you know, the bosses that are, are listening are not in a position to be the therapist for the folks right. who are in their charge. And so we as leaders have to land in a kind of gray area in between where we get comfortable uh, checking in on people beyond just, hey, how are you? And, you know, I'm noticing mm -hmm. that, hey, you seem out of sorts. You don't seem like yourself. Can we talk a little bit about that? I am just want to make sure you're okay. Or is there anything I can do to support you? And what do you need? And how are you feeling today? And give me an honest answer. And and we get there by role modeling mm -hmm. that too, right? If somebody says, how are you? You can say, you know, I'm only at about 20% today, if I'm being completely honest. But I'm going to give you all that 20%. And I'm hoping that tomorrow we can maybe double that. You know, and, and, and being able to role model that kind of honesty and vulnerability and putting a name to it. You know, you talked about that. That was one of the first things in this article that the author points to as a core strategy to overcome languishing. The other thing that I think leaders have to remember is that when people walk through the door and they're not at 100%, that is not a failure of their commitment. 
that is not a a lacking of um, devotion to you or your workplace or or the mission of the the work that you do there. It's human nature. We are not all at a hundred percent every day, all of the time. And so I think that the leaders everywhere who are working with teams everywhere are going to have to have a certain amount of compassion and flexibility around how they interact with people and recognizing that there's going to kind of be these constant rise and falls for folks for a while. Um, Non sequitur. Here's the other thing that I think is really interesting. Despite the fact that we discuss in the article languishing as, as not being a um, mental illness I do think it's interesting that all of the strategies listed in the article for overcoming languishing are the same strategies that are encouraged to try to work through depression. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you named one of them, which was naming emotions, giving voice to it, taking the energy away from it, being honest, at getting uh, honest about it, getting to the root feelings that live underneath how we think we're feeling. Um the other things that were in the article that that stood out to me uh, were trying to get into what is called flow, right? This is a state of mind where what you're being asked to do aligns perfectly with your your talent and ability and your interest. Uh, so if you see this in athletes, it's called being in the zone, right? Where you're just operating at, at your best. If we can periodically immerse ourselves in something that we find really intellectually stimulating that uh, kind of meets us exactly where we are. It's it's the Goldilocks alignment, right? Not too big, not too yeah. small, just right. Um, that that can help. And it is admittedly harder to get into flow when we have trouble focusing, but but if we can try to pursue it, even if it is just a, a crossword puzzle or, an, or, or a fulfilling conversation, anything that we can get immersed in and lost in a little bit is helpful. There are a couple other things in the in the you article, know, but you're nodding, and so I want to give you a chance. No, I want to. I just you're you're picking up about the flow thing, and that's reminding me of what I um, thought to myself while reading that uh, specific section, which was there was a, another component of flow in which um, he specifies that it needs to be uninterrupted time, yes. right? And that's why I was like. Well, that explains a whole hell of a lot because if I'm lucky <laughs> on any given day, I get a half an hour. Right. 0.5 of an hour of un truly uninterrupted time. And even then my door to my office is open so that I can overhear what my kid is doing online school. Yes. So there is no wonder <laughs> that without the capacity to have that truly uninterrupted time, how is the flow supposed to start? It doesn't. <laughs> if there's no ability for it. Right. Right. And so then that kind of made me go, you know what? Uh, I I need to give up that shame and that guilt because there's an actual legitimate time reason why I can't get to that state right, right now. Not that it's not possible for me, right? But right now. And we're seeing organizations who are recognizing that and they're actually blocking off chunks of time in their employees' schedules and saying no meetings, no Zooms. This is, you know, no no Zoom Tuesdays or no Zoom Tuesday, Wednesday mornings to create for them an environment where we could potentially trigger that kind of experience because 
Most of us in the workplace are getting yanked from one direction to another all day long. You know, the average leader checks their email 74 times a day. Um, Don't quote me on that. I just read something along those lines. I'm not trying to throw out made up stats here somewhere, but um, I believe I saw it recently in a Gallup. That seems reasonable. But it does, it does, doesn't it? Um, Yeah. I'm sorry. I try not to throw out data without giving you the source, but I I just read that this morning. But um, okay, even if it's just 24, like, hello, it's still 24. Right. And so getting into that flow state is is only going to happen when we are willing to take the protective steps to block our time or to say no to and re- or resist things that cause those kinds of interruptions. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's a really great start. Those are some hard uh, tactics that people can start to take and make for themselves. The other thing that I think um, as leaders, um, you know, like Joe mentioned, obviously you're not their therapist and that's not your capacity, but helping people name and role modeling, um, I think is really important, uh, role modeling about your own mental health. And then the other part of that is, is that when something, when you know it's out of your your uh, capability to handle when someone is really, truly struggling and you want to be able to provide them with more resources, make sure you have that information. If you have an EAP program, you know, check in with your HR professionals, get that list of resources that are available and ready for your teams so that you're not stuck in the moment going, I don't know what to do. You have the resources available and ready because this is going to keep happening. Excellent, excellent point. Thank you for for saying that. I feel like we could say that in every episode that, you know, that no matter what's going on with your folks, you should have at the ready uh, some comfortable language you can use to encourage people. Hey, have you ever thought about talking to somebody about this? And have you, did, are you aware that these resources are at your disposal? So thank you for, for pointing that out. I have yeah. one other thing I want to say about flow, and it's entirely selfish. So <laughs> a couple of weeks ago in one of our episodes, we talked about, um, activating talent. And if you look at a lot of the research about talent and people getting to use their gifts at work, it's tied to the research on flow. And that when we get into that at state of mind where it's a, there's perfect alignment between the challenge in front of us and our talent and our ability, um, we get a kind of tunnel vision and we lose ourselves in the work. And anybody listening to this who has gotten lost in a project and looked up at the clock a few minutes later to find that two and a half hours has gone by, you've experienced flow. And so a number of yeah. years ago, I was talking about flow a little bit more in depth when doing some leadership training, and it forced me to learn how to pronounce the name of the gentleman who is sort of the granddaddy of this research. He is a Hungarian-American psychologist named Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, and I just wanted to break that out because I had spent a lot of time learning how to say this accomplished <laughs> man's name, and I got it, and it stuck. And now I was able to use it again here in service of our podcast. So there you go. Hooray, you. And I don't (laughs) think any one bit of that story was selfish. I think it served our listeners. And by the way, it is your podcast, so you're allowed to be selfish whenever you want. And the only reason I can remember it is because I spelled it out phonetically on my notes when I was writing a training course a few years ago as his last name, Chick Sent Me High. Chick Sent Me High. And I was like, okay, that's it. Because I did. I looked up the phonetic and I was like, you know, I, I want to pronounce the gentleman's name correctly. Uh, and yeah. yeah, so it's there. It's in there now. It's never coming out. I've got it. So if you ever need to know who the granddaddy of flow is, uh, just ring me up and I'm going to have it, boom, right there at the ready. 
Will do. Will do. Well, that brings us, as it normally does, to our camaraderie question of the week. As our listeners perhaps know by now, Alyssa, we provide a question every week that you can take to your teams in an effort to help them find some things in common with each other. We know bosses build camaraderie on teams by making it easier for people to access each other's humanity. So the question we have this week for your next meeting or your next huddle is as follows. Alyssa, if you had to start your career over and you couldn't do anything related to what you are doing now, what alternative career path would you choose? (laughs) Wow, there were like four sounds there all in a row. There was like a sigh and a huh and then a giggle. There's a lot going on behind the eyes there. (laughs) Well, you know, as a child, I always thought I would grow up (laughs) to be a teacher. And I'm laughing and choking on that word now because after this year and a half of virtual school, uh, there is no Mm. way in Hades that (laughs) I could ever be a teacher. Uh, I think perhaps it might be a smidgen different whenever it's not your own kid. Um, But nonetheless, it's hard as heck. Um, And I think teachers are rock stars. I am not qualified to be that Mm -hmm. level of rock star. However, I think that if I could like do it all again and have no qualms about money and (laughs) all of the rest of it, titles, I would be a writer. No kidding. That yeah. doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, just in in, in watching uh, just how your interests have evolved in the in recent years, the, even just the kinds of things that you get passionate about here on our podcast and in our conversations, um, that doesn't surprise me at all. Are you writing around? Are you writing a memoir? Are you writing fiction? Are you writing self help <laughs> books? Are you writing smut? Like what? <laughs> what's the, I what's am the writing. I'm not writing choice? smut. Gosh, okay. Don't 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 uh, put my mom <laughs> into that headspace yet. No, mom. No. Uh, <laughs> if I did that, it would be under a pseudonym. For sure. Okay. Uh, no, I think um, I really connect with um, being in the self help space, being of service to others. Um, but certainly with um, personal experience. So not necessarily memoir, uh, but absolutely experiential based. Um, I I feel like I have in the last, you know, five years, uh, we'll say, been very intentional about um, trying to understand what what it is that I truly want in life and living my priority life and being able to help others live theirs. And so that's where I really connect the most um, with the writing space. Got it. And so I love it. well you are in the unique position. Maybe. I was just gonna say you're you're in the unique position. You can still do that. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about that. 
Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Mm. Ooh, I like the foreshadowing tease. Maybe, just maybe. <laughs> Down the line around right, the bend. Yeah, so lay it on us. What are you, what are, oh, I, I mean, you'd have to be some kind of theater or, but, but that's really kind of connected to mm. what it is you do now in a way. So, all right, well, I'm just not going to guess. I like that, that you're what, shaking what the box. Be? So uh, uh, during the holidays, whenever I get a present, <laughs> I'm the person that like shakes the box and tries to guess. So I like that you're shaking the box and like, what do I know about Joe? And what what guess, what am I going to guess? You can even do this as an exercise with your team, right? Before You could ask this question, Ooh, but then you could yeah. say, here's a piece of paper with everybody's name on it. Let's pass it around the circle and you write down what you think they're going to say their alternative career would have been or what, what would be yeah, most interesting to them if cool. you wanted to do a longer, more extended kind of fun team building exercise. Um, so I'm going to give a double, a double layered answer as you did. You gave me teacher, no way, then writer. And so, um, yeah, yeah from, from high school, I, I, I had a desire to do theater, to do musical theater and to be on Broadway. And even that came late in schooling for me, but it's what I really went to undergrad for at the beginning there. Um, and so always aspired to that. Um, still get to do some of that sort of thing, not at that level. Um, but if I had to go in a completely different direction, and, I, and that's what I really like about this question. So for leaders, I want you to push I want you to push your teams to try to actually go in, a, in as alternative a direction as they can, something that's pretty far away from what we're doing now. I would want to do something with the space program. I, I We've uh, talked about this a little bit, I think, before on the podcast. Yeah. I'm just in awe and, and am completely mystified and impressed and moved by everything related to the exploration of the cosmos. I can't even get my head around it. I, I've read a lot of books on the space program, and I, I love all any movie about space. Oh man, I love it. You know, every TV show about space. Oh yeah, I want to watch that. I just am consumed by it. And so, being able to be a part of of that in some way, I don't think I would want to do the astronaut thing. Yeah. Okay. I was that was going to be my next question. Okay. Though, if if in my lifetime there is a not terrifying way in which to experience going to outer space, I would absolutely do it. Um, I'm simultaneously afraid of heights. So we're going to work all of these things out. <laughs> Me but too. I, right? <laughs> but I could not imagine the experience of floating above the earth. I, I mean, I and what that must look like and what it would, what it would be like. Um, so maybe if I got a job in the space program, it, it would be something behind the scenes. Uh, I would need to pull my math grades up, though. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Love it. Does that surprise you? It doesn't. Now that you say that, uh, the instant you said space, I was like, oh, yes, he has that awe and the wonder mm -hmm. for the space. And so uh, I I, I love that for you. I think that... Um, the whole astronaut part of it is was the intriguing part to me, whether or not that would be like your because that's kind of like the tactical arm, right? You know, the scientific and the engineering arms. And there's so many different facets, obviously, um, to the whole space thing in general. Mm -hmm. But the awe and the wonder and the reverence for which you speak about space and the cosmos, mm -hmm. I can absolutely see that. Yeah. And I, and I see the astronauts as the folks, they have to have all of it, right? They have to be the engineers. They have to be the math gurus. They have to be the, the, the fighter pilots and the fearless. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible mix of 
knowledge. I feel like they need to have four to eight brains in their head, whereas most of us only have one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the camaraderie question of the week. Well, the last part of our show today, Alyssa, is something that I am really excited about. And so to introduce this for our listeners, I want to ask you to think about when you and I started doing some work together a couple of years ago to shape some of your coaching work into a potential keynote, right? We had started working on a, a keynote speech for you that you could deliver around helping leaders and executives live a more balanced life that, that reduces burnout. Yeah. And you're, if you're watching on new to YouTube, you can see that Alyssa is nodding and smiling. Do you recall that in that process at one point, I shared with you a formula that I thought might be helpful in getting clear on the, the structure of your idea? I do. And, you know, thank goodness for heavy, sturdy shelving above me, because in my bajillions of notes that linger above me, I have the paper. In, ah. in which I, you're right. You're asking me the questions, and I'm writing the questions and trying to put my answers down. And then we're going back through, and you can see my my, my pen marks and my pencil scribbles going this and then that and then this and then that. So I do remember that conversation, of which there were several. But I think I'm I think I'm remembering the specific one in which you talked about what weaves that together, right? Um, Do you remember what it was called? Well, I remember only because we have this lovely red run sheet here. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I don't. But, but I remember also because I have referenced it several times. Yes, you um, have. As your specific superpower uh on the on the podcast um that you do this so beautifully and it is to weave the red thread through a story having this theme having this attachment to the emotions behind each element of what it is that you speak of and it is a beautiful tapestry that you weave with this red thread well i am so excited that we are going to have an interview with the author of that idea. So I don't get credit for coming up with the idea of the red thread, uh, although it is something that I have leaned on and used a lot in years to help become a better storyteller and to help communicate a message in a way that is succinct and digestible, that people connect with, that people can understand. Uh, and so the the author and, and founder of that concept is named Tamsin Webster. And after several years, she has finally written a book on this called Finding Your Red Thread that's all about making your ideas irresistible. And so Tamsin agreed to sit for a brief interview with us. And so I'm going to introduce this now to our boss heroes. Take a listen to this uh, and enjoy Tamsin Webster here on Boss Better Now. I am joined right now by strategist, storyteller, and author Tamsin Webster. She's a former TEDx producer and has worked with organizations like Johnson & Johnson, Harvard Medical School, and Intel, as well as with hundreds of individual founders, academics, and thought leaders to help experts drive action with their ideas. She's also the author of the new book, Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible, which is out this week. Tamsin, welcome to Boss Better Now. I am so excited to be here, Jomo. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you here. Uh, what is the red thread and how does it make ideas irresistible? 
So the red thread is the story that your brain builds to connect a question and an answer, a problem and solution, an issue and an idea. Uh, our brains make sense of information all the time. We tell ourselves stories consciously and not to explain why the world or we behave the way that we do. And the reason why figuring out what the red thread of your idea can make it irresistible is that essentially you're building that story that people will tell themselves about your idea. And those are the most irresistible stories of all. I, I think it's obvious just in that description that that your model and this book in particular has a ton of utility for bosses. So let's talk about that. Uh, how can the book and the model function as a tool or a resource for leaders? Well, I think it. I designed it very much for business people um, because I think there's you know when I first started figuring out this aspect of my work about five years ago, right, right in the early earliest days of the Red Thread. Um, I was what I was trying to do was reverse engineer all the kind of intuitive knowledge I had gained in the 20 previous years I'd spent as a branded message strategist. You know, in that case, it was my job to be presented with a situation and figure out not only what to say but the right way to say it. And then a, about you know five seven years ago, I was in a position of starting to help other people figure out what to say and the best way mm -hmm. to say it. Uh, and I couldn't just tell them. <laughs> <laughs> to say, um, because in certain cases, these were speakers for TEDx Cambridge, so they needed to be the ones to present this. And you know, there were a fair number of leaders as well. And I mean, you, you know, being a speaker as well, you know that the, mm -hmm. the best way to connect with the audience is to make sure that you're fully connected with what you're saying. So, uh, what I found was that even though lots of us know that storytelling is a really powerful way to get information across. A, not everyone feels comfortable telling stories. They don't see themselves as storytellers. And B, what I found, particularly five-ish years ago, was that a lot of the information on how to tell a story was really not business leader friendly. Mm. Um, a lot of it was based on the hero myth, which is a great story structure, by the way. But it's also seven to 12 steps, depending on which right. one you would, you know. And so I really wanted to find a simpler way for people to be able to structure information so it felt like a story and had the impact of a story, even if it wasn't told as a story. Um, and the red thread is the result of that. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. And and for so many reasons. I know that when I work with organizations and we do data collection at the employee level and we ask folks, what needs to change here or what needs to get better or what would you like to have happen more often You know, to fix ABC problem? Regardless of what ABC problem is, one of the most common complaints is communication. And when you ask folks Absolutely. what needs to change about that, the answers are wildly vague. And so- what are the keys to sharing ideas and information in a way that will lead others to feel informed and involved? Well, you you actually stated the answer right in your question and mm. the way that you set it up, because a lot of times the big failure in communication is we forget to think about the other side of it. We focus so much on what we want to say and the point that we get across and the reasons why we think that's the right thing to do, that we forget that the other people that we're talking to aren't convinced yet and may not have right. the same level of knowledge or just you know, predisposition to say yes to whatever this is. So one of the big things that this book is really about, and one of the 
core ideas that it's based on is that communication doesn't happen unless what you send out is actually received. And so part of what I've tried to build into the red thread is understanding what are those pieces of information that the brain needs to hear to connect between here's what we're doing and why sometimes just those two pieces aren't enough. They're that we have to give people a little bit more information. Um, and so that's really what the book is meant to do is to help people, whether they realize it or not, kind of slowly turn the camera around so that they're looking at their communications mm. uh, from the perspective of the person who's going to hear it and building that person's case for the idea, not just their own. I'm thinking about what you say in the book about how most of our decision making is unconscious and that our brains yeah. are navigating a maze we can't see. And that sounds like something that might work against us when we're trying to communicate. So tell us a little bit more about that. How do, how do we overcome those kinds of barriers? Well, so it comes back to the fact that in all of that pre-conscious decision making, the what is known is that the brain is making is processing that information in a, in a very specific way. And we know what that is. It's, it's story where we are, we are processing information as story. And it isn't necessarily those once upon a time stories, uh, but they're explanations, right? And, and stories are explanations and most explanations are stories. Um, and so what we can do to understand what really needs to be part of any kind of really effective change communication is to look at those once upon a time stories and borrow from them what the main pieces are. Because a story only makes sense when it has those pieces, like a once upon a time story only makes sense. Mm. So this kind of, if you map over and say, well, if a story makes sense when it has all these pieces, kind of any idea will make sense if it has all yes. those pieces. And so that's that really is what the, the main elements of the red thread process are, are figuring out and mapping over those once upon a time story elements to communication elements. What what pieces of information must be in your communication in order for it to really be understood and ultimately acted on? And so it sounds like this is something that at, at a very minimal level, leaders at least need to build time in for. Right. If I'm thinking about how I want to transfer knowledge or share information or just get people to buy in to whatever it is I'm either selling or advocating for, that I can't just show up and wing it and, and speak off the cuff. Right. And, and just sort of speak extemporaneously about it. I need to be intentional in carving out some time when that's our most valuable commodity, right? We don't all have time to do it. But what I hear you saying is, if we can be thoughtful and intentional about doing it and we can use the right ingredients, we supercharge that communication much more effectively. Absolutely. And the more that you do it, and I know this from seeing my clients now, having worked with this for five years, the more that you do it, the closer you can get to winging it in the moment. Um, and it's, but it's still never winging it without anything. I mean, in the beginning, mm. it's like any skill you're going to want to spend time. It, it takes practice saying, okay, well, what is the question that my audience is asking that this idea isn't an answer for not what question do I wish they were asking, but what are they asking right now? Yeah. I mean, just that one step is, will, will radically change the impact of your message because you're starting with what your audience wants to know and not what you want them to know. Um, 
But once you've got that basic framework in your head and those, you know, those elements, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about them quickly is, you know, goal, problem, truth, change, action. Uh, it, it becomes one of those things that becomes a little bit second nature. This is what my clients tell me is that over time, even if they haven't sat down and figured those things out, uh, that someone asks them a question, well, there's that question they want to know the answer to, and their brains can kind of immediately go, okay, well, what's the, what's the problem of perspective? Okay, what's this truth that kind of makes that problem possible to ignore? Okay, what, what's my feeling on this? What, do I, you know, what approach do I feel is the right one? Okay, what, is it, what might that look like? And just having that framework ends up becoming a very easy thing to kind of know that you always can fall back on. And honestly, like I said before, it's one of the reasons why I developed it the way that I did is that I wanted and needed people who were busy and didn't have a lot of time to have something that could, in a short amount of time, really radically change the impact of their communications. Well, and I don't know anybody who doesn't find value and comfort in structures and models that provide for us a kind of roadmap to, to if I plug the right pieces in, in the right order, what comes out at least has a pretty good chance of being effective. And so it sounds like we've, we've got some of that here. So you rattled it off. Why don't we go back, give those ingredients to us a- again. And within that list, where do people tend to fall short the most? Sure. Um, well, kind of everywhere. <laughs> um, uh, well, the, the first, let me talk about in the order where people, things get missed. And there are a couple places that definitely get, that get missed. And I'll talk about that. But the very first piece is what I call the audience's goal. Uh, easiest way to find that. I said it before, ask yourself, what question are these people currently asking for which they don't have an answer, but that your idea, your communication contains the answer. Mm -hmm. So what question are they currently asking? So it can be anything from like, why can't we do X more? Or how can we improve Y? Or what can I do to get X, you know, Z out of my company? Um, Again, it's not necessarily what you wish they were asking. It's what are they actually asking right now? Um, It does need to be something that your idea answers, but start there. So that's the goal. That's the audience's goal. I'm going to say that again, audience's goal, not yours. Um, So that's the first piece. And that matches story structure in the way that when a story, a once upon a time story starts, we don't really get fully engaged into that story until the main character, we establish what the main character wants, but doesn't yet have. So most people generally are familiar with the Harry Potter movies. So I like Mm -hmm. to use that as an example. Um, we may be curious about why a wizard is leaving a baby on a doorstep, but we don't really engage with the story until we meet Harry mm. and realize that Harry wants a family that he does not have. He wants right. to belong somewhere and doesn't yet. So that's the goal. So once we see the audience, you know, once we know what the audience wants, they are going to lean in. This is a story they're going to tell themselves because if it's a question they're asking. They're like, oh, this is about me. I have that question. Mm-hmm. The next piece is just like in any major story, there's a problem that gets in the way, but a problem that the character didn't know about when it got started. So Harry has no idea that Voldemort is out there and is going to stand in the way and threaten the potential for him to have a place where he belongs. And the same thing is true in any kind of business messaging, that standing in the way of your audience's goal is something that they don't know about yet. Now, 
the I call this a problem of perspective because a lot of times, t- speaking to where we sometimes get this wrong, we jump right to, well, the problem is you're doing it wrong. Essentially, <laughs> that's what we're saying. But but if we understand that how we see the world drives what we do, then the first thing we actually need to figure out is, well, what? how are they looking at the situation that explains why they're doing that? And so we need to identify that lens. So the, the problem is always a two-part problem. Okay. It's their current perspective and then a new perspective that kind of intuitively would make sense to them, but where they would agree they're not focusing right now. Mm. So for instance, um, uh, one of my clients, Tracy Tim, I think you know Tracy. Um, maybe you don't. She's out of, of Dallas. Um, she like Her audience uh, was CEOs who have a lot of millennial employees. And their question was, how can we keep millennial employees from leaving? Like, what are these? They don't respond to any of the incentives that we have. What are these new levers of loyalty? That's the question. The problem of perspective that we identified was that most of the time, the answer to that, like what incentives can we use? We're, we're anchored to the position, you know, well, if you're at this level, you get these perks. And if you're at this level, you get these perks. And they were focused more on the position perspective one, than on the people in them perspective mm-hmm. two. And you notice what we're doing there is that we're not doing it, giving them anything radically different or radically new. We're just saying, would you agree that you pay more attention to the positions and the people? That's traditionally what, what, where the focus has been. Sure. Yes. Okay. So now we've got a goal. We've got a problem. In a once upon a time story, there's always something that's known as the moment of truth, right? Where the, uh, the, and my favorite word for this is anagnorisis. It is Ooh, that that's moment. like a dollar and a half word. Ah, I know. <laughs> um, but it's a Greek word talking about this moment in any story, every story, by the way, uh, gr- good story, where the main character recognizes the true nature of their circumstances. Mm. And so with Harry Potter, this is the moment where Harry realizes that in order for him to save his family, in order for him to to battle, like it's going to come down to him. Like he's got to do this and he's got to do it even if it means he doesn't survive. Mm -hmm. Um, And your story that you're building for your audience's brain needs to have the same thing. It needs to have something, some additional piece of information that they believe is true. They would agree is true. That because they believe it's true, threatens what they want. Mm. So, for instance, back to the Tracy Tim example, if they're focusing more on positions than people, and yet we can agree it's true that people are what make positions work. If you want to keep your millennial employees from leaving, all of a sudden you're like, "Uh oh, I'm going to have to do something different. I'm going to have to make a choice. So in a story, that choice drives a change. So we've got goal, problem, truth, change, right? Harry has to do something different. Harry has to embody the fact that, mm-hmm. Harry, you're a wizard, and he's gonna, he's actually going <laughs> to do this thing. And then in, the, and in our message story, right, saying, okay, so the solution then, and this is what Tracy helps leaders do, is to personalize the incentives to the people in the positions. And she's not saying get rid of the position levels, but she's saying, hey, if somebody's at this level, give them options. And if it's at this level, give them options. Right. And what you see is now you've got kind of a complete story that someone goes, okay, I see why this makes sense. The last piece are just what ha- actually happens. What are the actions that people take? So, you know, for, 
for Tracy, these those actions would be one of the specific programs and specific things that she does with leaders in order to help her do that. But those are the five pieces, goal, problem, truth, change, action. And when you've gotten all there, what you do is basically just wrap it back up to the goal mm-hmm. and say, hey, look, you got, did you get what you wanted? Absolutely. And there's actually a little bonus in the book because there's this thing I call the goal revisited where it's like, it's like the cherry on top of the Sunday on top of the cake that you have just given them and allowed them to eat as well, which is what else do they get? So goal, problem, truth, change, action, and it kind of brings them back to the beginning. Well, I hope everyone who is listening to this will will favorite this episode so that you can continually come back to that super mini masterclass that Tamsin just gave us. Uh, and to go deeper, you can get the book. And I'm going to ask you in a minute to tell to tell folks where they can get the book, Tamsin. What is so exciting to me as someone who has watched others embrace your methodology use it, uh, as someone who myself has used that very formula you just outlined. What I see happening over and over again is when the audience experiences that, they go, oh, I never thought about it that way. But then it feels like common sense. They say, well, of course, it makes total sense. And so it's almost paradoxical, right? I never thought about it that way, but it feels like common sense. And then I'm leaving inspired and excited to take action, not because I saw a motivational speaker, but because now I have answers. I have insight that I necessarily didn't have before, and I've got answers that I can go act on because this was packaged and delivered to me in such a way that it just all clicks. Yes. Yes. I I mean, I, I said it before, this is all about building the story that people will tell themselves. And the reason why that's so important is because we're going to do it anyway. And most of the time, our brains are wired uh, to tell a story that talks us out of doing anything different than we're doing right, right now. And so what we have to do is we have to we have to build a story that makes more sense than the status quo, that feels like it's more able to achieve what somebody wants. It feels like it's closer to things that they already believe. And I think that's probably one of the more counterintuitive things that people discover through this method is that oftentimes that the the best way to change people's behavior doesn't lie in changing what they want and believe. It actually lies in upholding what they want and believe, but getting them to look at those things in a slightly different way. Boy, talk about a truth statement. That's a, a beautiful bow on the end of our conversation. Tell folks where they can get this fantastic book. All things Red Thread Book can be found at redthreadbook.com. And uh, yeah, so we've got some some good goodies there for people who buy multiple copies. Uh, but you can find the links to all the online places where it lives right there at redthreadbook.com. Well, I'm so glad you joined us today. And for our boss heroes listening, I have a feeling that that they, like I, will be going back through this conversation more than once and just mining it for all of that insight. Thank you for being here today, Tamsin. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's our show, folks. If you liked what you heard, we will ask you to tell others about it. And you can do that the old-fashioned way on social media. Share it, post it, tell other folks to check us out at bossbetternowpodcast.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. And thanks for all that you do to take care of so many. This show is sponsored by Joe Mall and Associates. Remember, commitment comes from better bosses. Visit joemall.com today.